Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Killer Jeans Stripped Down, where we talk about everything true crime and then some. You'll hear about the cases that are close to us and go behind the scenes of true crime reporting. We'll also talk about case updates and breaking news, as well as speak with some of our friends and colleagues in the world of true crime. Now, we're going to be sharing things we've never been able to talk about because certainly inappropriate to post online, but this is the platform that we can finally share it, what really happens when gathering true crime stories. So let's get to it. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Killer Jeans Stripped Down. We are so excited to have our guest today. It is our very good friend, legendary investigative journalist, and child predator hunter, Chris Hansen. Chris, welcome. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Melissa. How are you guys? Great. Thanks for joining us. We want to just uh, remind everyone that we all know each other through, uh, for first of all, you're a, a veteran legend. Everyone knows that. But I was in my own mind. In, <laughs> I was given the pleasure to work with you and meet with you on Crime Watch Daily. And that's how I met you and Kelly. What a great show that was, you know, and uh, the pleasure of being a part of that. And we really were able to do some incredibly good crime reporting and what a great team of people, you know, the two of you right at the top of the list. And um, I mean, just when you think about everybody involved in that show, and the only reason it's not on today was because it got out of cycle with some of the networks and some things that were out of control. But what an amazing group, really. I mean, and and it was so much fun. And, uh, you know, it was aggressive. It was five days a week and uh, much of it on the street of New York where I anchored. And uh, it was fun. It's fun. I miss it. Chris, what would you say, not to put you on the spot, Chris, but what would you say was your most memorable case or story that you covered for Crime Watch Daily? You know, I think there were a couple. I remember uh, working with you on a couple. And one that sticks out because it's uh, resurfaced is that case in Indiana. We did a whole show there. It was the first time we went on location and did a whole show on those two girls who were found murdered in Indiana. And I remember going out there and we, we anchored the show that morning and we had a, a lot of interviews and, and a couple of the correspondents were actually out there and producers with me. And to this day, that was 2017. And to this day, that case is unsolved. And it, it haunts me because they have the cell phone video, presumably of a potential suspect and audio of that suspect. And these poor little girls were doing nothing but going for a walk in the field. And I remember doing the camera pieces next to a train trestle long ago abandoned that went over a gulch with a river and you had to walk over there to get to the crime scene. And it was just haunting that just over there, these two, you know, little girls' bodies were found, young teens. And it just really, I, I hope we can somehow figure out a way to solve that case. I know the FBI is working on it, local police, and, and they put a ton of time into it. But for the sake of the family and for the sake of justice, I hope we can, we can get somebody uh, prosecuted there. So, Chris, you have been well known for for going after and capturing child predators. You know, I'm sure that's not something that you said. When I grow up, I want to be. <laughs> you know, so- you're exactly right. You know, it's it's funny because obviously it's become the iconic thing that I've done, and you know, in a in a 40 year career, 
which is shocking to to come to grips with. I've been doing this that long, but I, I didn't. I didn't set out to make it a franchise. You know, it clearly has become iconic for all the reasons we know. It clearly has become the thing I'm known for. I always joke with people that when my oldest two were in high school, being a television correspondent wasn't a big deal. They went to school with athletes and superstars on Wall Street and captains of industry. But when South Park did a Chris Hansen parody episode, suddenly I was the coolest dad there. And that's kind of the, the cultural bridge that I crossed there. But, you know, Predator is, you know, 10% of my portfolio, but it's it's what people know me for, 10 Emmys and none of them for Predator. But it was, it's it's important work and it was important as, you know, a franchise within Crime Watch Daily because I had shot a new investigation prior to taking over as anchor there, host. And, and I think it's important. And especially when you think about the environment in which we are today in this pandemic, where kids are spending more time online than ever before, parents are otherwise engaged and not always able to monitor these activities or understand how many social media platforms exist today. When we started the Predator investigation 17 years ago, we merely had decoys in chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo. Well, today, the number of social media platforms has absolutely exploded. And we've been out doing new investigations for a new television series and some other projects. And it's shocking. 17 years later, you know, it's more prolific than ever before in terms of a crime. It, it, it boggles my mind. I thought we'd do it two or three times and nobody would show up. I wasn't even sure people would show up the first time. Honestly, I thought I might have just wasted tens of thousands of dollars of the network's money. And you've done some very elaborate sting operations in all of your years. Did you ever find that there was a certain characteristic or a mentality of the predators that you spoke to? You know, it's interesting. Melissa, you bring that up because everybody asks, and it's a great question, what do these guys have in common? And you, you want to put them all in one category. You know, I, I do this podcast now, Predators I've Caught, where we go back through some of the cases and I immerse myself in them in a way I wasn't able to do when we were doing the the, the interviews, you know, right there and then. I, I, you only have so much information as these things happen. And to go back and really just soak yourselves into it. And I think it's a combination. And I think about this all the time. It's a combination of ego, of lack of self-control, of this attitude that I can get away with this. And then this selfish justification uh, that this is okay for me, that this girl, although 13, and this is rape of a child, girl or boy, um, said it was okay. So it's okay. And, and these guys have a way of blurring this line between fantasy and reality because it's online and because of the anonymity and because of the addictive nature of the internet. And the 24-7 access. And they, they start to say things they wouldn't say face-to-face. And then it normalizes this. And there's a certain percentage of the male population who can't control the division between reality and fantasy. And they cross that line. And the next thing you know, they're walk, knocking on our door, walking up our sidewalk. And I think that's what these guys have in common. And, and the other thing, quite honestly, Melissa, is they don't stand out from a crowd. I mean, yeah, we've had some creepy guys walk in. Might as well have had the word predator tattooed across their forehead. But 
you know, we've also had doctors on the cutting edge of cancer cures. We've had teachers. We've had military intelligence officers, law enforcement officers. We've had guys from all walks of life, and they don't stick out of a crowd. Chris, do you also think it's uh, crimes of opportunity as well? And that, so how does, how does social media play into all of this in the platforms? Meaning there should be some sort of, of responsibility, I think, on, on their part. And I know it's a big question and it's one that's hard to answer, but in your opinion, what do you think has to change? I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about this, you know, this crime, crime in general. When we talk about the drug problem and at some level, there's an addictive nature to this, right? So how do you solve that? You know, how do you prevent it from happening and and how do you deter the crime? Okay, those are the key questions here. So in the drug world, we've decided to decriminalize some of this behavior because it's an addiction. It's a sickness in some cases. Yes, there are bad guys dealing drugs and murders result and all kinds of bad things result. But the demand is from addicts, right? And so if we treat the addict, we reduce the demand. That's demand reduction. So maybe some of those guys shouldn't go to prison. They should get treatment and women. And and that works. The problem in the case of child predators is, while it might be addictive behavior, there's not a solution that works across the board, nor is there for drug addiction for every every addict. But but it's really much more murky when it comes to this predatory behavior, because Some guys can get wrapped on the nose, given probation, monitoring of computer activity, registration as a sex offender, and and they'll go, they'll go straight after this. They'll, they'll, they'll not do it again. And these are the younger guys, the opportunists who may be 18, 19, 20 years old, still dangerous to a minor, but they socially awkward a bit inept. And they think, well, you know, if I get with this 13, 14 year old girl now in a couple of years, it'll be legal and it won't be a problem. Those guys, in some cases, can be fixed. They're the hardcore heavy hitter predators who can never be fixed. These are the guys who, with or without the internet, would be at the playground, at the schoolyard, at the movie theater, at the mall. They're bad guys. They need to be locked up forever. And then there's this middle category, and this is the majority of what we see. Guys who have a predilection towards kids, boys or girls, but wouldn't defend without the internet. And, and they, they get addicted, and that's when they cross this line between reality and fantasy that I discussed earlier. Those are the guys who are more difficult to find and treat. And in most cases, they require punishment. And how do you defend your child against these guys? Well, the best line of defense is the discussion that takes place in the home. It's education, awareness, and a dialogue that begins at a very early age, but that is age appropriate. So once your child goes online, you have to have the discussion right away. There are grownups out there who will pretend to be children to try to trick you. And kids don't like to be tricked. So, you know, that's a good starting point. And as things progress, as kids get older, you know, you have to, you have to have this discussion and you have to just have a sense of awareness that, you know, even, even, you know, with kids now who are 30 and 27 and two younger ones who are in college, I mean, we didn't have to have that discussion so much. We had to have the awareness discussion. They got to watch their dad on TV bust these guys. But, you know, the reality is they were a little more protected. It was harder to get to. Now, you know, with the online gaming, 
with you know Snapchat and and, and you know they can move these things uh, from Kick and Badu and all these other social media platforms to direct communication so easily that it's a little bit frightening, quite honestly. And so, because it's never going to be resolved, it's always going to be a problem. You need to really create a sense of awareness at home. That's your front line of defense. Well, there's also the social culture where we condone, we're not condoned, but it, we, it's what's normal now is massive age gaps between people. And then this fascination around youth that, um, you know, magazines and television and film and social media really push so hard is the sexualization of youth at a young age. And I'm not a parent yet, but I, I know I can only imagine the horror when you see a lot of the apps that are created and, and the way that oh, some yeah. of the young girls are already so developed oh, and take advanced. It, take, it, take it one step further. Uh, we are on our second story on the YouTube channel, Have a Seat with Chris Hansen, on parents who are exploiting their children mm-hmm. sexually online, YouTube. Right. Uh, take a look at the case of Piper Rockette or Danielle Cohen. Her mother is pushing her out there and has since the age of 12 or 13 in sexually suggestive videos, pictures that appeal toward men, and they know this demographically, who are predators. And these aren't just cute little videos. These are videos that discuss their sexual exploits, abortions, boyfriends, and millions of dollars is being made by these mommy vloggers. Now, not all of them are exploiting their children sexually, but this stuff goes out on YouTube. And here's the irony. When we do a story on the YouTube channel on this, sometimes we're not monetized. Now, I don't do YouTube for money, so I really don't care. I do it for you know, what I think are altruistic reasons. But the fact that it's demonetized means they're trying to not promote it. Yet when Danielle Cohen's mother exploits the sexually aggressive videos, that's monetized. So what, where, where, how does that make sense? So what responsibility does YouTube have here? And I go at YouTube all the time on this because there's a great deal of inequity when it comes to enforcing different things. And I've had to, we had to do a whole four-part series on Discovery Plus on this guy Onision before they finally demonetize him. Here's a guy who was abusing preying upon the most vulnerable of his young fans. I mean, in an outrageous way. And it wasn't until we took one of his videos and literally intercut between the terms of service cartoon video YouTube has, the good touching, bad touching video, and embarrassed the hell out of them. And the next day they finally demonetized it. But that's what it took. And why? Because these videos make money. Why? There are billions of videos out there. And it honestly is hard to keep track of who's doing what at any given time. But generally speaking, uh, even though I understand there's a balance here with the First Amendment right to say and do what you want, and they want a free and open platform, you know, come on, there's some stuff that just, you can build in algorithms that would better protect children than what is in place now. And I think you're going to see this whole thing with YouTube head towards Congress, just like what happened with, um, you know, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I think that's next for YouTube. Chris, do you think a sexual predator can be reformed? I think some can, but 
you know, it's deciding which ones can and which ones cannot. And we've seen cases, and that's one of the benefits, honestly, of doing this podcast, um, where these guys, even given all the help and support and finances and lawyers and family, they don't, they don't go straight. It's just a horrible compulsion and a mindset that doesn't allow them to do it. The rabbi who we caught so many years ago outside of Washington, D.C., prosecuted by the feds, got sentenced to six plus years in prison, did almost all of it, gets out. He's been back in the joint five times because he won't follow the rules of his probation. He won't stay off the internet with, with born sites and whatever else the restrictions are. It got so bad that he was in with his therapist when the parole officer came to visit and he wasn't supposed to have a device that could access the internet or porn sites. And as he's talking to the probation officer with the therapist in the room, his illegal phone goes off. It rings and he gets busted on the spot. It's like, come on, can't you just follow the rules to get off probation or follow the rules forever? I mean, geez. I also, I feel like, well, not only with uh, sexual predators, but murder cases as well. I always try to figure out, you know, wh- why did this person teeter and and go that extra inch when most of society doesn't, right? And I just, I feel like right. I always, I keep coming back and there's, it's multifaceted, but I always come back to an impulse control problem that is greater than themselves, psychologically and well, mentally. I, I think impulse, everyday you know, that we, we have restraint. You have restraint. Some people don't have that nozzle. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, you know, that's what we see in our investigations. Um, you know, within the last year, we did more and we're getting ready to do some very soon. And you see these guys who, you know, in one case we did recently, the guy was a prison guard, a corrections officer in Michigan, told his wife that he was heading up to Home Depot to get paint leaves behind, you know, three kids and, you know, he's online. He shows up at a, in our sting, uh, trying to get with a 14 year old girl on his way to the home Depot. And, you know, they, they came after me, like I'm the bad guy. <laughs> well, don't, don't, don't go after 14 year old girls online. It's very simple. You know, I always wonder, did you always uh, travel and do this with uh, security? And did you ever have a moment where you thought, okay, this is it. I'm in trouble. My life is in danger. Nothing really. I mean, we take a lot of precautions. I mean, even before we collaborated with law enforcement, the first two investigations before we collaborated with law enforcement, you know, I had security. Ronnie Knight was there and he's a you know, former NYPD guy who did security for NBC for years. And, and even after NBC came out of, comes out of retirement occasionally to help me out. But, you know, we take precautions. We have proper security. Um, it's a fluid sort of investigation. Anything can happen at any time. And I think that's part of the reason why people like to watch it is because it's not guaranteed that something won't happen. But we take as much precaution as many actions as we can to prevent it. And and we've been pretty good about it. Now, have we had some close calls? Yes. In Flagler Beach, Florida, a guy didn't show up until after we had shut down the investigation for the night. Turns out he was a police officer at a small town at the Alabama-Florida border. And they pulled him over in a traffic stop because, and I talk about this one of the podcasts, because we didn't have time to get the house turned back on. 
and they arrest him. He had a loaded 38 in his pocket and in his car, he had a 45 caliber, a shotgun and an assault rifle, 800 rounds of ammunition, chainsaws, chains, anchors. I mean, just, just, you know, his vehicle was full of bad stuff. So what happens is the guy walks in. Now I know intellectually that Ronnie Knight's not going to let anything bad happen to me or the crew, but it could be a mess and you don't want that. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, you, you guys know you've been in the business a long time. We had another guy who showed up in Fairfield, one of the cases that was on Crime Watch Daily a few years back. And in the guy's car, he had a loaded weapon, uh, duct tape, rope, video camera. He was going to take a 13-year-old girl who he thought was a 13-year-old girl for a driving lesson. And this guy worked for the local cable company. So he was in people's homes every day. And he was on the list to become a police officer in the state of Connecticut. He had gone to the police academy. So, you know, what, what happens when a guy like that, I mean, presumably there's some filtering or weeding out process that would hopefully make sure that this is not a guy who became a police officer. But what if, you know, so, so we've had a lot of those. We, we take precautions in terms of, you know, you don't want to allow anybody in that environment who's carrying a weapon. And if we have any suspicion whatsoever, we, the police will take him off before he comes in and we'll just rely upon the police interviewer. If I can get an interview once he's in custody, we'll do that. But nobody wants to, it's none, none of this is worth risking, you know, somebody's life on the crew. So we want to tell you about an amazing new company that has revolutionized the business of CBD. It's called CBDX, and they have blended CBD with Delta 8 THC. And get this, it's totally legal. So you know what that means. You get the same great high as you do with cannabis and the health benefits of CBD all wrapped up into amazing products. And for the products, you can get it in the form of some tasty buds, some vape cartridges, potent gummies, trust me, they're potent, and even pure concentrates. And here's the kicker. They are shipped straight to your home. So it's so much easier than going to a dispensary. Yeah, especially if you live in a state where cannabis is not legal. You know, I've tried them, I use them, and they will definitely give you a buzz. So remember that the CBDX products will show up as THC on a drug test and never drive or operate heavy machinery when using the CBDX products. So go to CBDX.com. That's four letters, C-B-D-X, and use the code KILLER for 20% off and a free gift to give it a try today. Chris, I want to switch gears for a second because your son, one of your sons, is is a journalist, correct? They're both uh, ones behind the scenes and ones in front of the scenes, yeah. Did how was your reaction when he, you know, basically came to you and said, Dad, I want I do, you know, I want to do what you do? It was gradual. I mean, both the both the older boys grew up around, you know, a house where it wasn't unusual to have a, a CIA officer, you know, out for boating or fishing one day, or a judge or a mayor or a governor over for a cocktail party or, or coffee. And and they would come with on shoots occasionally. And in fact, my oldest son was second cameraman on the Predator shoot that aired on Crime Watch Daily, Chase. And he worked on Crime Watch Daily. He now does films and commercials and other crime shows. Um, 
you know, not just with me, he's got his own, his own, um, his own repertoire of work now, which is, which is really cool. It lives in Brooklyn. And then Connor, who is the ham, like his dad is uh, on camera and just finished up a three year stint in Oklahoma city. And now he's heading to Orlando to start on January 3rd and he's moving his way up the ranks. So it's, so it's exciting. And, you know, look, I, I try to keep a soft hand with all of it because I want these guys to be their own, you know, identities have their own identities in this world but it's a very competitive business it is really cool for me to have these discussions with my two sons now 27 and 30 about journalism and you know we sort of have a morning meeting um you know what's going on what's this what's that and and i don't think it's a bad thing to be able to call your dad who's in the same business and say hey i'm outside this event and this is happening and what do you think and and but i you know I, i i don't you know, they, they learned a long time ago that there are, you know, wonderful benefits to being in this business, but you can't muscle the badge. You got to A, earn it on your own. You got to treat people very well, you know, the people with whom you work, as well as your sources. You can never burn a source. You know, you have to be respectful and you, you have to be smart. You have to play for the, the long haul, you know, and I think they both understand that. I remember growing up in the ranks of news in those small markets, and it really defines your character and your strength and what you can well, endure yeah. mentally and emotionally. It really puts you on a strong path. I was lucky. You know, I'm older than both of you, but, you know, I was able to get a job as a television reporter at the NBC station in Lansing, Michigan, when I was still a senior at Michigan State. So wow. I got a, you know, early start, you know, and then went from Lansing to uh, Tampa to Detroit and from Detroit to the network, but, um, you know, Connor has gone from Traverse city, which was a town in Northern Michigan to cover a lot of land. And he was there two years and it was a great experience for two or three years. He had a great news director and he was taught well and covered a lot of different things. In fact, one of his stories, he calls me one day and said, you wouldn't believe what happened in this courtroom. I said, what? It became a story for crime watch Stanley. We went up there and did it. Um, crazy murder case. And from there to Oklahoma City, and I thought Oklahoma City was great for him because it's it's you know you can could have gone to Grand Rapids, fine television market, easier move, but you're not in the tornado alley. You're not with sheriffs in outer counties who've got cowboy hats on and big bolt belt buckles. You're not uh, you know dealing with the oil industry and cattle and you know all the great things that come from a young man or woman having to go out to a place they've never been and work there for three years and be a reporter, not just go to work every day and go to office, but you have to learn the lay of the land and you have to meet people and know people. And it's, it's a, it's a magnificent education for a young man or woman. And people say, Oh, news is this or news is that, or TV is changing. Well, of course it's changing. Imagine the changes from when I had to edit videotapes that were that big to talking to you live on a laptop from my apartment in New York city. I mean, yeah, you change. Yep. With it. I mean, I mean, look, the days of working for one network from start to finish are gone. I, you know, I was at NBC for 20 years. It was a wonderful 20 years, loved every second of it. And it created the, the opportunities that I have today, but you know, I'm doing stuff with discovery plus or talking to that network or that streaming or doing, you know, I'm doing 20 things that I wouldn't be able to do without having been at NBC for 20 years, but people don't work for one network anymore. That's just not the way it is. Some do, and that can be very gratifying, but the new world is 
multiple streaming services, or at least at, at this level of the, the television business, and you try to create a product that has impact, that creates awareness and dialogue and, and takes people to places they wouldn't be able to go otherwise and see things they wouldn't normally be able to see and hear things they wouldn't normally be able to hear. It's taking these, taking viewers on a journey of discovery and telling a story that, you know, few other people get a chance to tell. And to me, that's, you know, that's what's, that's what makes this business still great. Well, it's changing, as you said, but also so is the um, definition, I think, of a journalist is what I've noticed over the years. And Mm -hmm. there's many tiers and levels and platforms. Do you think that the credibility, the definition, what a journalist is, has changed? And is it for the better? And, you know, I... In my memoir, I talk about how um, you know newscasters and reporters were admired for so long, and then I did notice personally a shift when I spent five years uh, covering Southern California news. And at times, I personally felt that you know society would turn on us, and we were the villain. We were the villain for showing up and trying to tell the story. We were the villain for trying to knock on a parent's door whose son just shot you know ten people in a theater. Do Do you think um, the notion and the idea of a journalist has changed? I'm I'm just curious. Well, I, I think it has evolved. And, and, and in some ways good, in some ways bad. I mean, look, you know, the technology has allowed us to be more adept, to be in some ways more intrusive, I think, to go live from somebody's front yard in a way that didn't happen, you know, 30 years ago, maybe. So we do have the ability to, to disseminate information quicker, uh, and at a more intrusive level. And I think there's more competition than ever before. So sometimes if you get, you know, somebody who isn't as sensitive as they should be, I think that intrusion when not, you know, done properly creates resentment, anger, and frustration. And if you don't know how to handle a situation with a distraught family of a victim, then you can create animosity that's unnecessary. And I think that sometimes journalists, in an effort to be first, be best, be aggressive, create a, a, a name for themselves, can cross that line. And that's why I go back to, you know, if you're in it for the long haul, y- you know, you're going to develop these kind of relationships that allow you to get into um, somebody's home and treat them with respect. Now, you know, fortunately, a lot of what I do today is with perspective. So when I'm interviewing somebody, it's after the fact, it's not when it's raw and as painful as it is just as it's happening. As you mentioned, somebody's teen was just shot at a theater, but you just need to, you need to be adept at handling that situation and not everybody is, and it does create animosity. And the other thing I've seen is this polarization in the political world where there's an attempt to vilify anybody who thinks differently than you. And the easiest target is the media. If the media asks questions of the president, whether it's Fox or Biden or NBC of Trump when he was in office, false aggression is created and false enemies are created because if they can focus negative energy on somebody else and blame problems on somebody else, 
mostly being the media, other reporters, then they can they can create a, a boogeyman that people will be mad at and not the politician themselves for inaction or inability to to move this country along. And and I think, you know, people ultimately figure that out. The viewing public isn't dumb, but they can be fooled. And you do see these ebbs and flows of attitude where, you know, people are falsely criticizing mainstream media. I mean, I hear that, you know, I see it in in my own texts, uh, group texts, people saying this and that about the New York Times. It's not true. It's like, do you read the New York Times? No, I don't read that. Well, then how can you possibly intellectually comment on it? You know, and I get, you know, cable news and I've been on cable news and I understand that everybody's got to have a point of view. And I understand, unlike some people in America, that there's a difference between a 10 o'clock show that's a point of view show with a columnist and a six o'clock show that's a news show. You know, people get that confused. It's like reading the paper. There's an op-ed page and a front page. Right. There's a slant on the op-ed page. It's supposed to be that way. It's been there since the beginning of journalism. So, yes, there are ebbs and flows and back forth. And, and we're in that right now where sometimes journalists are being vilified because they merely reported on a January 6th capital insurgent attack report. So, Chris, as we come to the uh, end of our time with you here, uh, you know, you got your start uh, and your passion for true crime with the Jimmy Hoffa case. If there was one case right now that you would have a chance to go and investigate and, and, and dig in on, which one would that be? Wow, there are so many. Um, I still, you know, I'm of the age where, you know, I became aware really after the Kennedy, during the Kennedy assassination. I was old enough to remember that. And, and coincidentally or not, just yesterday, some of the uh, documents were released by the government. And, and, and I think to me, you know, my vintage, my age, my coming of age, you know, I would like to see and read everything available on the Kennedy assassination. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, but I, I just, I know there's something there that we don't know, or I suspect there's something there that we don't know. And, you know, Camelot and, you know, the whole scene of it all, it, it just, you know, in his, you know, I grew up reading the PT 109, you know, so that's, you know, that, that's something that I would like to, if I could immerse myself on a five-year project, that's what I would do and have unlimited access for sure. Okay. Two quick questions. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I will. Um, crime yeah. legend. Does that make you uncomfortable? Do you see yourself as a crime legend who has just broke so many barriers and changed society? I mean, you're a meme, you're, you're, you're a statement, you're a phrase. Is that weird? I mean, have you taken that all in? I don't, you know, I, when somebody writes something negatively about me, I, I let it spill off and somebody writes something glowing about me. I don't take it too seriously. I, I mean, it's, it's obviously flattering. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a hardworking reporter who's been very fortunate to get the breaks that I've gotten to work with the people uh, with whom I've worked. And, and I mean, you know, from the get go, you know, I was in 1993, I was 33 years old, never done a news magazine piece in my life. You know, it was a sharpshooter Detroit street reporter for 10 years. And I fell in with NBC and Jeff Zucker and Beth O'Connell and Paul Greenberg. And these people sat with me in a tracking booth and didn't leave me until I could narrate and track a, a news magazine piece and tell a story. And that 
to me was finishing school. And that allowed me to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And now it turned into Dateline. A Dateline turned into a series of great stories and breaking news and, you know, being on the, <clears throat> on the edge of history being made and reporting it from Oklahoma City to 9-11 to everything that's happened since then, uh, up to and including the pandemic and whatever's going to happen next. So, you know, I've had a lot of lucky breaks. I, I've always said this, and I said this to my son earlier today, Connor, that, you know, it's all exciting. It's all great. It's great to move to a different town. But at the end of the day, you've got to be the first guy in and the last guy to go. And you've got to lead by example. You know, how you lead your life, you can't yell at your kids to do this if you're not living that life. And so if you lead by example, all the people around you are going to work their asses off to make you look good. And whether it's Crime Watch Daily or Dateline or To Catch a Predator or Killer Instinct or, you know, the next thing, the next thing, or the next thing, it, it, that's what it's all about. I mean, you look at Colin Powell's 13 rules, and that's it in a nutshell. That's it. It's being a leader. It's not asking anything of anybody else you wouldn't do yourself. And that comes from people you interview on air to, to fashioning a script so it's fair. You know, it's just you've got to lead by example and, and you learn uh, in 40 years of doing it that, you know, you can't be antsy about where you got to be or what's going on in your life. And, yeah, I made great sacrifices in my personal life over the years and learned a lot of lessons in terms of who I trust and what I do from a business standpoint. But at the end of the day, there's only one guy who is in charge of the brand, and that's me. And so you, you learn these lessons occasionally. But you push forward and, and you do. You just have to lead by example and you get a sense of what's right and what's important and what people care about. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's, you know, that's, I think, what, I, what I'll be known for. You can put that on the tombstone. <laughs> and I think we have one minute left, but I have to know, what do people not know about you? What's the one thing people would be shocked to know about you? I think I'm a pretty good cook. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> Maybe a cooking show in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we did that. You know, we messed around with this YouTube channel, Have a Seat with Chris Hansen, which kind of started as a, I don't know, just a getting a foothold into that new media. And, and one day I woke up after, you know, covering a couple of important stories, or at least important to that community with, you know, 25 million views and 370 some thousand subscribers. So, you know, we've had to feed this thing. And so during the pandemic, you know, we we're doing a, a show a week because we had access, you know, to nurses at University of Michigan, to doctors at, uh, in New York hospitals and, you know, restaurant tours and all the stuff that you, you, you get access to when you live in New York city and in Michigan. So in one segment, Gabrielle, my then fiance, now wife did a, a cooking segment actually. And, and it, was, it was so fun uh, to do <laughs> Uh, that, 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 uh, you know, we, maybe there is something there. Kelly and I are coming for dinner. Yeah, anytime <laughs> in New York or Michigan. Chris, thank you so much. So All much. right, guys, a pleasure. Great to see you both. And we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Chris. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening. Follow killer jeans on Facebook and on Instagram. It's at killer jeans, the podcast. Also be sure to like and subscribe to killer jeans on podcast one Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And together we host a weekly true crime podcast called 
the prosecutors. In every episode, we bring our unique perspective as full-time prosecutors to the most famous and debated true crime mysteries. Whether it's Maura Murray, Scott Peterson, or the Delphi murders, Brett and I dig deep to bring you details you won't hear anywhere else. Our podcast is about more than just a story. We will walk you through the legal problems lurking behind every case, breaking down the complexities of the criminal justice system with humor and a personal touch. And it's not just true crime. We bring the same training and approach we've learned as prosecutors to classic mysteries like the Dyatlov Pass incident and the ghost ship Mary Celeste. So if you're looking for a true crime podcast with a different point of view, The Prosecutors is the one for you. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.